The first advocate, Jesus, is speaking to God for you, but the second advocate, the Holy Spirit, is speaking to you for you. You're listening to the Shoreline Church Podcast. My name is Pilgrim Benham. I'm the lead pastor of Shoreline. And today on the podcast, we have a message from John chapter 14, verses 15 through 31, on the promise of the Holy Spirit. We're going to see how important the role of the Holy Spirit is in the life of the Christ follower. Hope you enjoy the message today. So, have you ever considered what we would do as believers without the person of, without the, the a promise of, without the power of the Holy Spirit? Like, if we didn't have the Father, we understand what the implications would be. We wouldn't be here. Uh, we wouldn't have creation. We wouldn't exist. That kind of is obvious. Uh, we wouldn't be drawn by the Father's love to receive salvation. If we didn't have the Son, we wouldn't have the Word made flesh, and thus we, we wouldn't have our sins expiated, we wouldn't ultimately experience true salvation. And we kind of understand that. We get that. We see that we need the Father, we need the Son. Uh, but have you ever considered how important the role of the Holy Spirit is in the life of the believer and in the salvation of the believer? And so I want to open the sermon today with a quote from Gregory of Nazianzus. He's actually the Archbishop of Canterbury in the 4th century. Here's what he says. He says, The deity of the Holy Spirit ought to be clearly recognized in Scripture. Look at these facts. Christ is born. The Spirit is his forerunner. Christ is baptized. The Spirit bears witness. Christ is tempted. The Spirit leads him up. Christ ascends the Spirit takes His place. What great things are there in the character of God which are not found in the Spirit? What titles which belong to God are not also applied to Him? He's called the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, the mind of Christ, the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of adoption, of truth, of liberty, the Spirit of wisdom, of understanding, of counsel, of might, of knowledge, of godliness, of the fear of God. This only begins to show how unlimited he is. And yet, though all of that is true, uh, the, Holy, the Holy Spirit still remains um, the most ignored or misunderstood or straight up forgotten member of the Trinity. And so today, as we open up the second half of John chapter 14, we continue our last words series in the upper room as Jesus uh, shares some of his most intimate, comforting words with his closest followers. We learned last week that now we have 11. One of them, Judas, has left uh, to betray Jesus uh, to the hands of uh, first the Pharisees and ultimately to uh, the unbelieving Romans. Uh, We have learned that Peter was told the horrifying news that he, even though he said, I'll never betray you or I'll never deny you, that he's going to do this three times. He's going to deny the Lord very shortly. And Jesus just broke the news that he's about to leave and his disciples would not be able to follow and join him. And so as we learned last week, Jesus encourages his disciples not to let their hearts be troubled, but to place their faith in him alone. And today, we're going to see him going even deeper into this idea to encourage them uh, that they're not going to be left alone, but he's going to send them another helper. He's going to send them the Holy Spirit to be with them. And so in this text, we're going to see, we just read it, we're going to see a few distinctions 
uh, between two things. But the big di distinction here, the big one, seems to literally off the page, and it's the difference between the work of the Holy Spirit and the, the concept of the world, the Holy Spirit and the world. And so when we see the word world here in this chapter, we need to understand what uh, it's referring to. When, when Jesus says world here, he's referring to the worldview, the attitude, the mindset, the pattern of thought and behavior that's highly esteemed among those who are, are outside of the church, those who are unregenerate. Uh, in Luke 16, 15, in the New Living Translation, I don't quote that translation a lot, but in the New Living, this is what um, Luke 16, 15 says. Jesus says this, what this world honors is highly detestable in the sight of God. What this world honors is detestable in the sight of God. Let me put it the opposite way. What is highly esteemed in the Lord is often countercultural to what the world defines as worth, significance, and value. One example, and we don't get political here at Shoreline, but one thing I do uh, I think it's important to speak about is abortion and pro, being pro-life. And uh, one example of this concept is the, re the recent legislation in New York, which allows for an abortion up until a day before a baby's born. Now, in no way should the destruction of life, of any life, be a cause for celebration. And yet the governor lights up One World Trade Center, uh, the color pink, to commemorate uh, women's rights. You see, the world embodies what Isaiah 5.20 says, where Isaiah says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, literally on the top of a building, light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. See, what's highly esteemed by the Lord is often countercultural to what the world esteems as worth, value, and significance. So in our text today, we're going to see three important ideas develop, uh, but as we'll see, each of these ideas about the Holy Spirit are in almost complete contrast to how the world defines these things. So if you're taking note, I hope you are, here are the three uh, kind of things we're going to outline in our text today. Uh, so we're going to see love, but not as the world defines love, not as the world understands love. We'll see how it's defined by Jesus in verses 15 through 21. Then we're going to see peace, but not as the world gives peace in verses 22 through 27. Uh, and then we're going to see joy, but this joy is not in or from the ruler of this world. In fact, joy is outside of this world, ultimately. So with that as our outline, we're going to look at love, peace, and joy, uh, and kind of the attributes of the Holy Spirit uh, as an outline. So let's look at the first one, love, but not as the world uh, understands, back in verse 15. Look with me at verse 15. Jesus says, if you love me you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, the world defines love in a different way than the Bible defines love. The world defines love as primarily a subjective feeling. We sit down and we look at the, the person that we love and we go, I love you. And, and the world says, I'm feeling emotion towards you. I think that you're beautiful or you're hot and I think that you're awesome and I want to spend my life with you because you make me feel good. That's kind of how the world defines love. But here, Jesus redefines love as an objective truth and action. He had just demonstrated that a chapter ago by getting down and washing his disciples' feet and serving them and, and showing them perfect love. And he's now explaining that love is to be demonstrated in action, not just felt in an emotion. I mean, in other words, you can talk about how much you love God or how strong your faith is in God, 
But the proof is in obedience. Now, for a lot of us, when I say that, a little alarm goes off, a legalism alarm. And we go, wait a minute, Aaron, that's legalism. I'm not supposed to obey the commands of God. I'm just supposed to know God and that's it. And, and I don't have to keep his commands. Well, not so fast, okay? Uh, there's unfortunately uh, some who believe and teach that we don't need to, to worry about obeying God at all. Uh, in fact, that the law of God is just something that we should just kind of schluff off, uh, kind of like old socks. Like, who wears old socks? I mean, they're kind of smelly and annoying. So just take off the socks and now we're good to go. That idea is called antinomianism. Can you guys say that this morning? Antinomianism. Yes, good, good attempt for all of us. So um, I think, yeah, there's the word, antinomianism. Um, so the idea, it's a false idea. The idea is that essentially we don't need the moral law at all. We don't need the Ten Commandments. The moral law is forever cast off. In fact, some of it even taught, thou shalt not keep the Ten Commandments. Okay, that's ridiculous. That's what an antinomian uh, idea uh, really promotes. And I would say, really? Well, which, which of the Ten Commandments are we not to keep? Are we not to, you know, thou shalt not steal. Yeah, you don't need to keep that. Well, I mean, what are we talking about? So R.C. Sproul actually defines antinomianism this way. This is a really great quote. He says, antinomianism literally means anti-lawism. It denies or downplays the significance of God's law in the life of the believer. It's the opposite of the twin heresy legalism. And then he says this, antinomianism's primary error is confusing justification with sanctification. We are justified by faith alone apart from works. And that's an amen. However, all believers grow in faith by keeping God's holy commands. Not to gain God's favor, but out of loving gratitude for the grace already bestowed on them through the work of Christ. We don't obey to receive love, but we obey because we are loved. You see the difference? I, I love my wife. Therefore, because I love Jen, I stay faithful and true to her alone. I do not have a wandering eye. Okay? It would be ridiculous for one of you to come up after service and say to me, well, you're just staying faithful to her so that you can earn her love. You no longer have to be uh, faithful to your vows. right? That would just be ridiculous, right? At that point, she would argue with you, not me. She would say, no, that, no, I'm faithful to keep my vows to my wife because I love her. And in like manner, we express our love for God. We express it by keeping his commands, not just waxing poetic. I love thee, O God. He goes, okay, obey me. You're like, nah, I don't really like that part of it. But I love thee, O God, right? It's not waxing poetic and singing these wonderful songs. No, it's living a life of obedience. Now, that obedience doesn't save us, but it expresses the fact that we're truly his beloved. John elsewhere in his epistles writes these verses. Check it out on the screen. 1 John 5, 3. You didn't believe me, but here it is. For this is the love of God, what? That we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Earlier in that same epistle, he says this, uh, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. He says, and by this we know that we have come to know him. How? If we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. How do I know I'm a Christian? Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. It doesn't mean we're gonna be perfect, but we're to be walking in obedience. Now, how do we truly understand that love? Romans 5.5 5 explains that God's love has been poured into our hearts through his Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So there's a direct connection between 
love and obedience and the Holy Spirit. Let's see it develop in verse 16. Jesus says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. If you would, real quick, rewind to verse 16, and if you've got your own Bible, um, circle or highlight the word another. Circle that word another. Uh, it's the Greek word alos, which means another, of course, but specifically another of the same kind, another of a similar kind. Uh, let me just illustrate it this way. How many of you guys have ever been to dinner? Anyone ever go out to dinner? Okay, both of you. That's weird. Have you gone out to eat? All right, so how many, I just want to know if this has happened to you. It's happened to me. You go out to eat, and around the table, she's taking the drink order. And uh, someone says, I'll have a water with lemon. And someone else says, I'll have uh, sweet tea. And, so, and then it comes to you, and you go, I would like a Coke, please. And then she makes that look, and she goes, hmm. And then she's going to say three words that every one of us dread. If we're going to order Coke, what does she say next? Is Pepsi okay? <laughs> Is Pepsi okay? Uh, and usually, you and I know this, it's never okay. Okay, Pepsi's never okay. <laughs> no one ever asks me if I'm okay, poor coach. But ultimately, it's not. You're like, no, I want a Mountain Dew. If you were to order orange juice, that's not the word allos. That's a, not another of the same kind. That's another drink. It's another liquid, but it's not of the same kind. Pepsi and Coke are of the same kind. That's the idea here. Allos is where we obtain the word alloy from. It's a similar type of metal. Jesus is going to ask the Father to send another helper in like manner, similar to Jesus, one who would not start over with new teachings, but would illuminate and refresh and remind what Jesus taught. So it's important to have Jesus here with us, but the Spirit is going to be better. He's going to be another helper in like manner. It's better for us that Jesus goes away so that the Spirit, the helper, could come. Now, the word for helper is a Greek word, parakletos, not parakeet, but paraclete, and it's really two Greek words together. It's the word alongside and called, to be called alongside. One who is called alongside to help you. You could be translated a helper, an assistant, a, an intercessor, or a comforter. Now, the Muslim world interprets this verse, verse 16, to be Muhammad. The Muhammad is the another helper. He's the, the allos. Well, that's clearly not what Jesus was referring to, even though Jesus does say the personal pronoun he. I hope you didn't miss that. If you look back, it says, uh, verse 17, it's the world neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you. Those are personal pronouns. It's always kind of cringy when I hear someone talking about the Holy Spirit and they say it. The Holy Spirit is never referred to as an it, as a wind, as a force that you kill Sith lords with. That's not who the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is a person. He's another similar helper who Jesus promises will be with us forever. Now notice that in verse 17, Jesus calls him the spirit of truth. That could be two different things. Um, it could be uh, that, that, that he is the spirit of the objective truth of God. In other words, doctrine. Who God is, what God requires, how a person can know God. He could be saying the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth, of doctrine, of knowing who God is. And if that's true, then it's important that anyone who says, oh, we're a ministry that is led by the Holy Spirit, but then they teach error, it's not the Holy Spirit, it's another spirit that's, that's leading them uh, if they're contradicting the truth of Scripture. Uh, but it could be that, or it could be that Jesus is saying that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth, the spirit of honesty. There's nothing hidden 
There's nothing disclosed. Uh, What's open and not hidden, uh, when the Spirit of God works in your lives, he essentially does a work of truth where everything dark becomes exposed. Therefore, we have nothing to hide in Christ. As we're being sanctified, we no longer have to worry about skeletons in our closet. Those things are forgiven, and we're free now to be honest. And so we don't have to worry about being transparent or being fully known. The spirit of truth is at work within us. But notice that Jesus says the world cannot receive him because it neither sees him nor knows him. The world doesn't get this concept. It was necessary for the Father to send the Holy Spirit, not just as the one who would bring comfort and encouragement and who would keep the disciples close, but also he'd be the one who would keep the disciples keeping the commands. Does that make sense? Not just to keep them close, but to help them keep the commands. Let me show it to you this way. David Gusick says, Jesus understood that his disciples, both those with him on that evening and those of us across the centuries, would need God's presence and power to keep his commandments. God the Son promised to pray to God the Father and ask for the giving of God the Holy Spirit to the believer to accomplish this. Notice what Jesus goes on to say in verse 18. We've mentioned this earlier. I will not leave you as orphans. I'll come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. Verse 20, in that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. You see, the disciples may have been afraid that if Jesus were leaving, then their discipleship was over and that they'd be just left alone. But he reassures them, no, 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 I'm going, but I'm not gonna leave you fatherless. I'm promising to not leave you as orphans. Charles Spurgeon took that idea of being an orphan and how Jesus says, I'm not gonna leave you as orphans, and he says these kind of cool parallels. Spurgeon says, an orphan is left alone, but the Spirit draws us close to God's presence. An orphan uh, has lost their provider, but the Spirit provides all things. An orphan is left without instruction. The Spirit teaches us all things. An orphan has no defender. The Spirit is our protector. And he said, an orphan has parents who are dead, but the Spirit shows us Jesus is alive. As adopted sons and daughters, you and I are fully and forever loved by the Son and by the Father. And thus our love for the Father is expressed in our obedience to his commands. Notice Jesus Um, doesn't just say, you know my commands, but you have them, right? They're a part of you. We've hidden his word in our hearts. And so the law of God is written on our hearts, not merely something we recite with our lips. And so we express our love for God through obedience, and we experience the endless depths of the Father's love. And at the same time, we have a deeper revelation of the Son who is made manifest to us. And all of this, Jesus says, is possible through the Holy Spirit. And apart from the Spirit, it's impossible. This picture of this loving relational community uh, is a concept completely foreign to the world and the world's ideas about love. How do I keep the commands of God and express the love of God? I can only do that because the Spirit of God is empowering me, uh, filling my heart with the love of Christ and making the love of Christ manifest through my life to the world. So, Love is not the only thing that the world gets wrong. There's also peace. Let's look at the second idea. Peace, not as the world gives. Look at verse 22. It says that Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, 
How is it that you'll manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. All right, so if you're sitting there uh, with Jesus, reclining at the table, this is an obvious question. This is a valid question from Judas. I like, the, I like that John, the writer, is careful to point out that this was not the other Judas, right? Uh, we, we, we already knew that as the reader because earlier Judas left the building uh, and was going to betray Jesus. So we kind of already knew that. Uh, but if I were this Judas, or you can just picture if you and I were this Judas and we're being introduced at cocktail parties, people are like, oh, hey, there's Peter, there's James, there's John, there's Judas, uh, all the eyes widen, and you would say, not, not Iscariot. It's almost like that becomes his last name. Like, hey, my name's Judas, hashtag not Iscariot. Just wanted you to know, <laughs> got to keep it clear. And so this Judas, the other Judas, the good Judas, um, he communicates, uh, he's asking a question that he needs clarifying. Uh, he's just heard Jesus say, I'm going to depart. And so his question is, well, if, if you're going away, then, then, then how are you going to reveal yourself, not just to us, but to the world? How's that possible? And so Jesus' response kind of appears strange. All Jesus does is seem to reiterate what he just said a moment ago about loving him and keeping his word. It's almost as if Jesus is suggesting, listen, that the way he's manifested to the world is through the redemptive relationship that his followers now have with the Father afforded to us through the Son by faith. In other words, as we abide in his word, he abides in us, we rely on him, his spirit strengthens us, and then the world says, oh, there's Christ. I see it. As we learned last week, the word home in verse 23 is the same root word for abode or abide. Warren Wiersbe says, it's one thing for us to go to heaven and it's quite something else for heaven to come to us. Jesus is saying, we're going to come, we're going to make heaven, we're going to make our home with you. And so as we abide in you, then the world will see that Jesus is manifested. Look at verse 24. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Again, Jesus affirming his submission to and reliance upon the Father. And then in verse 25, he says, these things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. I haven't left yet. I'm still with you. And I'm telling you, it's better for you that I go away. It's incredibly beneficial for me to be walking with you. And some of us have prayed that. Oh, man, Lord, it would just be so cool if, if I could have been back there in the day where I actually saw you and you were right there next to me and alongside me. How cool would that be? And yet Jesus, not yet ascended, uh, would say, actually, I'm speaking this while I'm still with you, but it's better for me to leave because the next helper who's alongside you, who is like me, is the best one to comfort and indwell and empower and guide you. Look at the next verse. He says, but the, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So note with me that Jesus mentions here that, again, that the Holy Spirit is our helper. There's that word paraclete again. Um, now, we just learned about that a minute ago, that it means assistant, it means helper, it means comforter, and it means intercessor, but it can also be translated or understood by the legal term of advocate, that the Spirit is our alongside advocate. Now, what is an advocate? If you've ever been in trouble or in, in a need for counsel, legal counsel, some of us have lawyer friends, 
And we feel bad because we're always calling them about something. We're like, hey, I know you charge a lot, but can you just give me a quick answer? It's kind of like I used to work at Apple. So everyone who knows I used to work at Apple is like, hey, can I call you real quick? I just have an, an Apple question. I'm like, yeah, real quick is not true. <laughs> that doesn't exist. And you call up that lawyer friend to get counsel, to get advice, to have an advocate. What is an advocate? They speak on your behalf or they answer, they offer you guidance and they answer for you. Okay, that's important. Because the, the actual word Satan itself means accuser, means adversary, means one who opposes. So here's what Tim Keller says about this. I love this. Tim Keller said, many people say that the Holy Spirit gives us power, and that's true, but how does he do that? Does he merely zap us with higher energy levels? No. By calling him the other advocate or helper, Jesus has given us the great clue to understanding how the empowering of the Holy Spirit works. The first advocate, Jesus, is speaking to God for you, but the second advocate, the Holy Spirit, is speaking to you for you, right? So here's what he means. The Spirit is our advocate when our adversary brings his accusations against us. Uh, Jesus says, I'm sending, I'm going to ask the Father, he's going to send another helper, not to scrap my teachings, and start something new, but to teach us and remind us what Jesus taught and to, to be the advocate for us, to stand in the place and to fight for us. Now, in a general sense, what Jesus says about reminding what he taught, that's true of all believers. But in a more specific way, he's speaking about the you. He will teach and remind you. He's speaking specifically to the 11. He's saying, you are gonna need to be reminded of all that I taught you and all that I said and all that I did so that you write scripture. Uh, so this was important, but verse 27 culminates this concept of what Jesus was offering his disciples. It would be true spiritual peace unlike what the world offers. Look at verse 27. Many of us have this as a verse written on our, our Facebook wall, on our Instagram. Maybe it's on a picture in your house. But this is what Jesus says. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. See the contrast? Not as the world gives. Let not your hearts be troubled. He said that in verse one of chapter 14. But then he reiterates and says, neither let them be afraid. The peace that Jesus gives us is not as the world gives. The world says that peace can only be achieved when there's an absence of conflict. So lots of leaders, lots of beauty pageant contestants, they're always, they're always talking about world peace. If I could solve one thing, it'd be world peace. Uh, and I've seen the bumper sticker, uh, all we need is world peas. <laughs> we just need, we need that. We need world peace or world peas, one of the two. We as parents often want that type of peace. We, we want the absence of conflict in our home, don't we? We as parents are like, can I just get one night or one morning where our kids stop bickering or they stop yelling or they stop screaming or they stop doing whatever they're doing. I just, what we're saying there is not really peace, it's serenity, right? We're not really asking for peace. We're looking for serenity. Serenity is the idea of everything being quiet and calm. That's not the biblical concept of peace. The, the word in the Hebrew is shalom. And it's not just serenity where you put classical music on and you, or you have an ocean soundtrack uh, or you take deep breaths while you get a pedicure. <laughs> That's not the idea. Shalom is better translated as God's intended blessing, his wise rule and counsel. It's a wholeness of life where we're blessed even when we're distressed. You guys understand that? We're blessed even when we're distressed. 
Jesus, the Prince of Peace, has come to break the curse of sin and to restore shalom, to restore peace. Paul told the Romans that since we have been justified by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So when we walk by faith with Christ, we experience his peace, not as the world gives, not merely serenity, the absence of noise, but true shalom, true wholeness of life. That means this morning, church, you can have peace if you're a single mom and you are just desperate to get by. It means you can have true shalom this morning, true peace, if you're married to an estranged husband who's not here with you this morning and things didn't turn out the way you planned. It means you can have true peace this morning if you're watching this or you're listening to this, not because your conflict is going to go away. Uh, For Jesus, it was about to get brutal and even mortally excruciating to the point of death. But in the midst of your conflict, when everything's falling apart, you and I can at the same time be completely whole. There was an artist trying to capture this idea of peace, and everyone was anticipating the reveal of his portrait. And they said, what is it going to be like? And many of them, as he went to pull the, the, the kind of guard of the canvas off to showcase his material, his picture, said, I'm going to capture what peace really is. And, and one person standing there thought, it's going to be a sunset. And another person thought, it's going to be, it's going to be a, an ocean uh, scene. Another person thought, it's going, to be, it's going to be this quiet desert. Well, they all took a collective gasp when he pulled the 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 picture out and and revealed this huge mountain with this cascading waterfall and treacherous rocks and and it's just this this um, loud picture you just just picture how how intense the roaring of the waterfall was and then a little bit within the waterfall on the edge of a precipice was this small eagle resting on her nest with her eggs and that was the picture in the midst of all the craziness in the midst of the distress there's calm and there's true peace That's why Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. That kind of peace is foreign to this world. They don't understand that concept, and that's allowed to us, it's afforded to us, not by gritting our teeth and counting to 10 and saying, peace, peace, peace. No, it's by receiving the strength of the Holy Spirit. Well, it's not just peace, it's not just love that are foreign, but it's also one more concept that the world doesn't get. Let's look at verses 28 through 31 and look at joy and how to understand the Spirit's joy. Verse 28, Jesus said, you heard me say to you, I'm going away, and I'll come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced, there's the word joy, because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now, it's important real quick to clarify, what did Jesus mean when he says the Father is greater than I? The Jehovah's Witnesses will take that to mean Jesus is a lesser God, a little g God to the Father. That's not the correct interpretation. What Jesus is saying is that the Father is greater, not in essence, but in position. The Father did not descend to earth like Jesus as a baby. He was not humbled and then crucified. So in essence and being, Jesus and the Father are one. But he's saying that the Father is greater in position. I've taken a lower seat. I have submitted myself. I've condescended to a lower seat, a lower position. And so Jesus is inviting his disciples here in verse 28, to consider his departure, not from their perspective, but from his perspective. Their perspective made them sad. Oh, Jesus is going away. But he said, think about it from my perspective, and this should bring joy to you. I'm returning to the glory, to the fellowship, to the rest and restoration of of sitting at the Father's right hand after finishing the work. And so for the sake of Jesus, for their sake, for the sake of the world, the ascension of Jesus back to the Father is something worth rejoicing in. You see, the world doesn't get that. 
The world doesn't understand that we rejoice for something that is yet to come. The world finds joy in what we get now. Bliss and ecstasy, the euphoric experience of having what makes you happy here in this life, under the sun. Uh, the world system operates with this underlying thought, and you and I have wrestled with this because we're in the world. We've had this struggle, right, where if I could just attain or obtain, fill in the blank, then I'd be happy. You and I have fallen into this. We, we, we are susceptible to this. We, if I could just get that little bit higher paycheck, then I'd be happy. If I could just live in that neighborhood or drive that car or have that spouse or have my kids like this or have my kids achieve this or if I could achieve this, then, well, then I'll be happy. If it's not found in this life, well, then it must not be found. And so the world doesn't emphasize delaying your gratifications and your desires to lay up treasure in the world to come. And so there's no understanding of laying down our life, of suffering, of being crushed, of going without in order that we can actually live for a greater kingdom. This world says he who dies with the most toys wins. And so thus, as Jesus mentions here, the ruler of this world, who has it all under the sun, his aim is to keep our focus on the here and now rather than on the then and there. But Jesus explains uh, what it's truly like to experience joy. Look what he goes on to explain in verse 29. He says, now I've told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Jesus knew that Judas was organizing his betrayal and would soon be approaching, so to, uh, to accomplish the will of Satan, the adversary. But what an encouragement that that adversary has no claim on Jesus. This wasn't the will of Satan. Jesus didn't die at the hand of Satan or because it was Satan's will. He went to the cross, notice, in verse 31, I do as the Father commanded me. This is the will of the Father. Jesus went to the cross obedient to the Father, and he encourages us to follow in his obedience. The last uh, verse, the last part of verse 31, indicates that right at this point, Jesus arose from this reclining table and then they left the upper room and they began to walk toward Gethsemane. Now, it's not in John's gospel, but Matthew and Mark tell us at this point, at this exact moment, that um, they stood up and they sang a hymn together and then they went out. I love that. I know John doesn't mention it here, but I love that. It was very customary at the end of the Passover meal to sing Psalms 114 to 118 uh, together as kind of a finale. Don't you just love this, that Jesus stands up and begins to sing with his disciples? I love this. But here's what's super cool. The very end of Psalm 118, this is what they most likely would have sung if they sang that section of scripture. This is what they would have sung, Psalm 118. They would have sang together, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. As the disciples are are pushing their diaphragms and lifting up their voices in song to these words. Think of what they were singing, what was about to go down. 
We see in that, in that section of scripture the cornerstone being rejected, but ultimately being the Father's work. We see the people of God rejoicing in a day of salvation. We see the blessed arrival of Messiah coming in the name of the Lord. We see the revelation of God to his people. We see a sacrifice upon an altar. We hear an affirmation of divinity and an offering of thanksgiving and worship. We see goodness and enduring love of God, which causes us to give thanks and be glad. And all of that was about to be played out right before their very eyes. Now, we've just looked at how the world misunderstands love, joy, and peace. And yet, isn't it cool at the same time that those are the first three attributes of the fruit of the Spirit? That the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and continues on with those various attributes. Isn't that awesome? All of these are possible only by the power of, the person of, and the promise of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And so what I want to do before we close is just draw three points of application for us to leave today, take home points to walk away with. All right, so if you're taking notes, I would ask you to write these down. Number one, some application. If the way that you express your love for God is through obedience, right, then respond in light of what Christ has done for you and for me at Calvary, in light of how he's first loved us and commands us to live obedient lives for his glory, then I exhort you, church, to respond, to obey Jesus. But listen, this is not uh, accomplished except through the power and by the power of the Holy Spirit by faith. Galatians 3, 5, and 7 explain it this way. When Paul says, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is not those of faith, or it is those of faith rather, who are the sons of Abraham. John Piper clarifies this text when he says this. In other words, the faith that brings the Spirit uh, is faith in something heard. It's faith in God's word, the gospel which means it's faith in all that God promises to be for us in Christ. When we read or hear a portion of God's promise to us in Christ and we believe it, that is we trust and rest in it and are satisfied by it, then the Holy Spirit is flowing to our hearts and love is being produced. You see, the Holy Spirit is actively producing love in our hearts and the way that we respond is through obedience. So church, I wanna exhort you, guys, put off the flesh and put on the spirit that you may put to death the misdeeds of the body. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Respond this morning. Allow the spirit of God to speak to you and how you can walk in obedience to his commands. So respond. Number two, if it's true that we're never alone, then man, rest. Just rest. And Jesus tells us that the Holy Spirit is our helper, that he teaches us all things and brings to our remembrance what Jesus taught. That means we're no longer orphans. We're never alone. He's left us a helper who is our comforter. More than that, he's our advocate. So rest today from your anxiety, from your vain attempts at satisfying the accuser with answers, and instead rely on our advocate who speaks to us for us. Tim Keller speaks about Thomas Goodwin, who was a 17th century Puritan pastor. And Goodwin once wrote that he saw a father and son walking down the street. And he said that suddenly the father swept the little boy into his arms and hugged him and kissed him and told the boy that he loved him. And then after a minute, he put the boy back down. And Tim Keller asked the question, he said, was the little boy more a son in the father's arms than when he was down on the street? Well, objectively and legally, there was no difference 
But subjectively and experientially, there was all the difference in the world. In the father's arms, the boy was experiencing his sonship. And so Keller goes on to say, when the Holy Spirit comes down on you in fullness, you can sense your father's arms beneath you. It's an assurance of who you are. The Spirit enables you to say to yourself this, if someone as all-powerful as that loves me like this, delights in me, has gone to infinite lengths to save me, says he'll never let me go and is going to glorify me and make me perfect. If all of that is true, why am I worried about anything? Jesus goes out of his way to ensure his disciples, thus you and I by proxy, that he's not left us as orphans. The Holy Spirit is with us before salvation. He's in us as we receive Jesus Christ with repentance and faith, and he'll come upon us in power to equip us in our witness and in our work. You could say that there is a witness in our witness. That as we go to share the gospel, there's a witness. He's with us as we witness. The Spirit is also with us in our marriages. He's with us in our workplaces, in our college classrooms, and even in the dark corners of this world where emptiness and sorrow hide. The Spirit is with us in our weaknesses and in our defeats and also in our victories. So rest this morning. Take a deep breath and rest in the finished work of Christ and the strength of the Holy Spirit. Well, thirdly, if Jesus gives us peace, unlike the world, then relax, right? Not necessarily, not necessarily peace from the conflict, but peace in the midst of the conflict. Did you guys know that uh, since the beginning of recorded history, the entire world has been at peace less than 8% of the time? Uh, they did a study, and they, one periodical discovered that out of the 3,500 years of recorded history, only 286 years have seen peace. And during that period, there have been 14,000 wars in which 3.64 billion people have been killed. Uh, now, since 650 BC, there's also been 1,600 arms races of which 16, only 16, did not result in war. But in the midst of that time, 8,000 peace treaties have been signed and, of course, broken. The peace that the world gives says remove the trouble. But the peace that Jesus gives is shalom even in the midst of the trouble. Blessed when we're distressed. Charles Wesley sang it this way. He says, Jesus protects, my fears be gone. What can the rock of ages move? Safe in thine arms I lay me down, thine everlasting arms of love. While thou art intimately nigh, who, who shall violate my rest? Sin, earth, and hell I now defy. I lean upon my Savior's breast. I rest beneath the Almighty's shade. My griefs expire, my troubles cease. Thou, Lord, on whom my soul is stayed, wilt give me, keep me still in perfect peace. Jesus gives us his peace, so relax, so rest, so respond by faith. As we close this morning, we're gonna take communion together. I wanna invite Pastor Micah up. We're gonna close our time in this morning with a song of reflection. And my pastor's challenge, if you wanna go ahead and close your Bibles this morning and just get settled, beyond relaxing, resting, responding, my challenge for you this morning is to receive. I want to encourage us as a church to pray to receive a fresh empowering of God's Holy Spirit. Now, this is not a strange experiential thing. This is simply asking the Father to strengthen us with power. This is inviting the Spirit who is holy to do a fresh work in our heart as we're conformed to the image of Christ. But listen, to be filled means that we may need to first be emptied. D.L. Moody said it this way, I believe firmly that the moment our hearts are emptied of pride and selfishness and ambition and everything that's contrary to God's law, the Holy Spirit will fill every corner of our hearts. 
But if we're full of pride and conceit and ambition in the world, there's no room for the Spirit of God. We must be emptied before we can be filled. Does that describe you this morning? This morning when our service concludes after communion, after our closing song, our elders and their wives are gonna be available up front for prayer. And during that time, we wanna invite you as a church forward to pray and receive a fresh empowering of the Holy Spirit, a witness for our witness, a comfort if you're distressed, an advocate for those buckling under the weight of the adversary's accusations. Our ushers are gonna come forward. We're gonna receive the elements. Just hold on to them. Again, if you're not a believer, let them pass by you. But this morning, we're gonna sing a song that has this phrase, the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there have I, though vile as he, washed all my sins away. Church, let your heart not be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. May the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, the fellowship of his Holy Spirit be with us all. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.